Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Even though they were a British unit, they had, they played a very important role in uh, American Revolution, in the history and the folklore. That's Joseph Robluski talking about the Queen's Rangers and their service in Pennsylvania and New Jersey during the occupation of Philadelphia. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're discussing the Queen's Rangers with a longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Dr. Joseph Robluski. I love talking about the Queen's Rangers because they bridge an important gap in our understanding of the 18th century. A lot of my professional work has been in the American Revolution. Obviously, here at the Journal of the American Revolution, we focus our content almost entirely uh, on the on the period of the war immediately before and immediately after. Uh, but my training actually began in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War here in America, the war that Winston Churchill famously called the first true world war. And that's a guy that knows a thing or two about world wars. Anyone who studied the Seven Years' War understands that the American Revolution begins with the end of the Seven Years' War. The debt caused by the Seven Years' War, the, uh, the, the, the animosity that builds on the American frontiers as a result of Indian violence, all of these things build to the crescendo of the American Revolution. But one of the things that I love about studying both the Revolution and the Seven Years' War is that very fine but very pronounced connective tissue between the two. And one of those great strands of connective tissue, without question, is the subject of today's episode, the Queen's Rangers. We'll talk about that connection with Joseph Robluski today. We'll talk about, more importantly, what the Queen's Rangers do in the American Revolution. Uh, and as we'll see, uh, I think some conventional wisdom will be challenged when we view just how difficult it is for both sides uh, during the occupation of Philadelphia in 1777. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Joseph Robluski. Joseph Robluski, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Okay, <clears throat> I was born in the uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. I grew up right across the city line in what is Ewing Township. I went to uh, a St. Hedwig's parochial school, then I went to Notre Dame High School, both in the Trenton area. 
I graduated high school in 1963 and then went to Trenton State College as a social studies major. Today, Trenton State College is the College of New Jersey. Uh, when I went to it, it was a teacher's college. Now it's a big-time liberal arts school. And I graduated from Trenton State with a BA in social studies in 1967. That October, uh, I went for three months training for the United States Peace Corps. And starting in January 1968 to December 69, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the country of Western Samoa in the South Pacific, where I taught at a school called Chanel College and... Uh, I taught social studies there for the two years. Uh, upon completion of my two-year service in the Peace Corps, I came back to Trenton. I got a job at my old high school, Notre Dame, where I was on the uh, social studies faculty. Uh, and in 1972, I received a master's in social studies from Trenton State. In 1974, I believe it was April, I got a job with the School District of Philadelphia in the Office of Research and Evaluation, and I stayed there for 18 years. And then in 1992, there was an opening in uh, Stephen A. Douglas School, which is part of the school district, and their alternative dropout prevention program. So I got a job there as a social studies teacher where I remained until I retired in 2001. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well... Uh, my, my interest grew in this topic in a roundabout way. Uh, I had been doing a lot of research on Kazimierz Pulaski and his campaigns in the Delaware Valley. And in uh, a couple instances, when he was the head of the uh, commander of the U uh, Connell Cavalry, he had skirmishes with uh, Simcoe's and the uh, Queens Rangers both outside of Philadelphia when the Rangers had uh, duties to patrol the Frankfurt uh, Road to allow farmers from Bucks County to come into Philly to sell their goods, and then on uh, these forage rages, the first one at Haddonfield and Cooper's Ferry. In Simcoe's book, he talks about how this cavalry was opposed them, and he knew it was Pulaski and uh, he had a, one of the men fire at him and things like this. So when I got into, like I said, my first interest was Kashmir Pulaski, but then I did some research on the Queens Rangers, and they spent a lot of time in New Jersey on various raids and skirmishes, and my, my prime interest in the American Revolution is the revolution in New Jersey. So that's how I got into them. Could you give us a brief history, maybe a catch-up of the Queens Rangers before the Revolution? Because they already have a pretty staunch reputation by 1776. Okay, before the Revolution, the Queens Rangers, uh, to use a single phrase where it was Rogers Rangers in the French and Indian War. Uh, Robert Rogers started this uh, group of frontiersmen from... New England, mainly New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and they had a very interesting career along the uh, Lake Champlain area. And uh, Rogers was their leader, and he became almost what we say today, he became a rock star after the war uh, because of the exploits of his rangers. 
and um, I, I don't know if people watch it now, but movies about him that I saw was the Northwest Passage with Spencer Tracy and Robert Young and Walter Brennan's based on Kenneth Roberts' book, Northwest Passage. And doing this research, I really got hooked on it. And like I said, Rogers was an amazing man. He, he's probably one of the biggest enigmas in uh, this period of American history where he was such a uh, hero, interesting person to both the colonists and to the uh, English back in England. And um, he just had a real rough time after that. Uh, he got in trouble with uh, two of the most powerful men in northern, uh, the northern colonies, uh, General Thomas Gage, who was commander-in-chief, and he was governor of Massachusetts, and Sir William Johnson, who was the uh, Indian agent for the northern department. These were two of the most powerful English, you know, people living in the English colonies. And uh, Rogers, who met the King of England, and the King of England gave him a post as governor of the Northwest Territories that they took from the French up in Upper Michigan, Michelmackinac, however you pronounce it. And um, Gage and uh, Johnson went after him. They had him arrested for treason. He was court-martialed. He was found not guilty. He goes to England and... Uh, to try to exonerate himself, and uh, he becomes an alcoholic, and he be gets in debt. He spends two years in a debtor's prison, and you would think when the fighting breaks out between the British and the colonists, because of the harsh treatment that he would side with the colonists. But he comes back to America in 1775. Uh, he is on half. He's on half pay. Uh, when you're a British officer and you're not on active duty, you're, they call it half pay. He was getting a captain's half pay, and that was one of the reasons he ended up in debtor's prison because the half pay didn't pay for half of what he spent. So anyway, he comes back to the, uh, to the colonies in 1775. He lands in Baltimore in June, and he's playing both sides. He tells everyone he's a British captain on half pay, but uh, he's going to stay neutral. And then he gets, he talks to uh, Governor Tyron in New York, the uh, loyalist governor, asks for land up in New York. He gets in touch with his old friends from uh, the Rangers Day, Israel Putnam and uh, John Stark, who served with him during the French and Indian War. He gave indications to them that he wanted to join the Patriot cause. And, Everything, like he's playing both sides, but eventually, but he, he, consensus is he was always going to be with the British. And eventually, uh, New Hampshire puts out a arrest warrant for him. And the, uh, on July 1st, 1776, he's in Philadelphia. And all the, you know, Declaration of Independence and all that's happening. And the Congress orders his arrest. He's put under loose guard, like a house arrest, July 8th. He escapes from his uh, arrest. He makes his way to Staten Island, where he gets in touch with General Howe, and Howe uh, offers him a uh, major that if he could, he would offer him if he would set up a battalion of Rangers, like in the French and Indian War. The interesting thing was in the French and Indian War, 
William Howe's brother, uh, George Howe, was a aide to General Amherst, and he liked Rogers because uh, George Howe was one of the few British officers who felt that this type of fighting that the Rangers did served very well in uh, North America. The sad thing was that uh, George Howe got killed on the uh, attack on Fort Carillion, which became Fort Ticonderoga. And uh, the man who took Howe's place was Thomas Gage. And so uh, Rogers lost a good friend and uh, got an enemy instead. I'm deviating, going off the topic. Anyway, so in 1776, uh, Rogers begins recruiting for a new ranger battalion, which is called the Queen's Rangers. It was named after King George III's wife, uh, Queen Charlotte. And he recruits mainly in New York and Connecticut. And uh, by October, they were stationed up above White Plains in uh, that area. And their first uh, skirmish came at, uh, in October when uh, Colonel Hazlitt's Delaware troops were attacking. And they held their, the Rangers held their position, but they had like 20-something guys killed, numbers taken prisoners, but they held the line. And now we're getting into the winter of 1776. And um, Rogers, his recruiting was, he offered commissions uh, to anyone who would recruit any soldiers, regardless of whether they were competent or not. And in the uh, early spring of 1777, uh, there was an inspector general of provisional uh, troops, and he gave a real scathing report about the uh, Rangers. He said just about all the officers should be uh, fired, to, uh, removed from their positions because they were totally incompetent. And again, uh, by this time, Rogers continued with his drinking, and uh, he had very little control of what was happening. And so in uh, the early spring of 1777, Rogers was cashiered. Who was John Graves Simcoe, and why was he given command of the Rangers in 1777? Okay, um, well, before Simcoe came in, when uh, Rogers was removed from his post, there were two other uh, British uh, officers who took over the Rangers. One was a Colonel Christopher French, and the next one was a, was a Major James Wemus. And this Wemus was with them when they landed in, uh, with, uh, at the head of the Elk for the campaign to Philadelphia. This is September of 1777. The Rangers had a very interesting battle at the part in the Battle of Brandywine. And after Philadelphia was taken, the Rangers were stationed in, outside of Philadelphia in one of the outposts called Kensington. And this was along the uh, Frankfurt Road that went from Philadelphia into Bucks County. In October of 1777, um, Major Weymouth left, and a Captain John Graves Simcoe came on the scene. And Simcoe was born in... Uh, 1752. So he was only 25 years old when he took over the Rangers. And he, uh, again, his Simcoe's father had been a captain in the Royal Navy. Uh, he uh, 
was at the Battle of uh, Quebec where he contracted pneumonia and died. Uh, Simcoe had gone to Eton, and he started one year at Oxford or Cambridge, I forget which one, but his mother eventually bought him, bought him an ensign uh, commission in one of the infantry regiments. So again, in those days, if you wanted to uh, become an officer in the British Army, it was usually buying your uh, commission. Uh, and in 1775, he purchased a captaincy in a grenadier company of the 40th Regiment. He uh, was with Howe in New York in 1776. And again, eventually he is appointed to the uh, Queen's Rangers. And again, uh, once Rogers was taken out, the three following commanding officers were all English as opposed to being loyalists from America. And the reason that Simcoe wanted this position was in his book, he mentions that the command of a light corps, or as it's termed, the service of a partisan, is generally esteemed the best mode of instruction for those who aim at a higher station. So he felt this is the best way for a young officer to get the experience, and uh, especially if you're going to make a career out of the military. And one of the things, like when, the, uh, when he took over, the Queens Rangers had uh, 10 infantry companies. They had um, eight center companies. They had a grenadier company, which was the big guys who took over the right flank. They had a light company. Uh, these were the, like, scouts. They were on the left flank. And a group of Scottish loyalists who were chased out of North Carolina ended up in uh, the Philadelphia area, and they were in, brought into the Queens Rangers. And it was interesting that they were dressed in full Highland garb, and they even had their own bagpiper. And they were assigned to the uh, light company on the left flank. And then as uh, Simcoe began their training, uh, he, he was offered the services of uh, the 16th uh, Dragoons that, that if he needed cavalry to go out scouting. And he, he turned it down. He said he'd rather, if they would give him 12 horses, he would mount his own scouts. And they agreed to it. And eventually that led to what was called the uh, Queens Rangers Hussars. So it went from 12 men to eventually where he had a company of anywhere from 30 to 50 mounted hussars. And they're the ones we usually see in pictures with the large uh, black caps. They were his uh, mounted troops. And he added uh, a sniper unit. Uh, 13 marksmen were brought up to him, and he put them in their own unit. And uh, the last thing that happened, he, they captured a three-pound artillery piece. So they, were, they became under him a fully uh, self-contained unit, like we, we would call like Pulaski's Legion. They were self-contained, or any of the partisan units. And, again, this led back to what uh, Simcoe wanted when he uh, wanted this command of a different type of unit. And one of the last things about what Simcoe did like when you were in the British Army, they uh, emphasized parade drill, um, arms, things like this, whereas Simcoe, in his training, they emphasized uh, firing muskets, actually aiming at targets, also the use of the bayonet. So he took kind of a different uh, 
uh, idea on how to set this unit up, and even though he was a regular British Army officer. You mentioned the Grand Forage in your article. That's such a big part of the Philadelphia campaign. Uh, and a side of the Continental Army we don't get to see very often. Could you tell us what the Grand Forage was? And how did it get into New Jersey? Okay, now we're at around uh, February of 1778. Remember, at this time, Washington's army was in Valley Forge. Uh, General Howe was in Philadelphia. And by this time, both sides had used up most of the uh, supplies that they had. And it started out where uh, George Washington gave orders to Major General Nathaniel Green that they should uh, forage around the area of Valley Forge to get the necessary supplies. We all know the story about the hard times at uh, Valley Forge. And most of the uh, forage and supplies in the area of uh, Valley Forge, which was mainly Chester County, had been taken in. And so uh, General Green decided that they should move across the Delaware to uh, what we call today South Jersey, which was spared much of, uh, really by this time, any of fighting going on, and they felt there was a lot of supplies there. And Green assigned General Wayne, who we refer to as Mad Anthony Wayne, to take a force of about 250 to 300 men across the uh, Delaware to uh, Salem County and forage there. And uh, the orders were for him to go into the Jerseys from Wilmington to execute the design of destroying hay and driving all stock from the shores. So that was his overall order. And starting on February 9th, 19th, 1778, Wayne's force uh, landed in Jersey. Uh, Captain John Barry of the Continental Navy, his sailors brought the uh, Wayne's force across. And with the help of New Jersey militia, they began uh, their, their own foraging operation. And uh, eventually he collected 150 head of cattle, 30 horses. And because he didn't have wagons, uh, they burned all the hay. The idea was that they figured sometime the British are going to come across, so they didn't want to leave any of the hay for them. And... Uh, by February 25th, Wayne was at Haddonfield, New Jersey, and he sent a message to Washington that uh, he was sending the cattle and horses to Trenton to cross Delaware up there and head to Valley Forge. But also he had received news that around 2,000 British troops were coming uh, across to do their own forage and uh, to attack him. because, And he was correct because General Howe, the loyalists in Jersey let Hal know that uh, Wayne was there, and he decided to send two units to trap Wayne and collect their own livestock and forage. And on February 24th is when one unit landed south of where uh, Wayne was, and then on the 25th, another unit with Colonel Thomas Sterling, uh, Sterling and of the 42nd Regiment and the Queens Rangers uh, crossed the Delaware at Cooper's Ferry, which today is Camden, New Jersey, and they brought about a 1,000 men with them. And uh, after leaving a guard uh, 
at the uh, Cooper's Ferry. The Rangers and the bulk of the 42nd uh, started south to do their foraging operations. Uh, they reached Haddonfield, but by this time, Wayne, who had been told that the British were coming, he retreated about 20 miles to the northeast to Mount Holly. And so the Queens Rangers, they began their own foraging operation. Uh, uh, when they reached Haddonfield, they set up camp on what it was called Cooper's Creek. Today it's called Cooper's River. And it's interesting, on March 1st, they were ordered to head to the southeast towards Egg Harbor, New Jersey, seeking livestock. Uh, and it's, they came upon a uh, large cache of tobacco and rum. They found it in this barn. And what they did is they uh, burned the tobacco and took the rum back with them when they were heading back to uh, Haddonfield. And also by this time then, uh, General Wayne had sent messages to Washington that uh, the British were on, you know, following him, and he asked uh, for help, and he sent a letter to Kazimir Pulaski, who was in Trenton at the time with the Continental Cavalry. He wanted help from him, and uh, Pulaski, he eventually got 50 uh, troopers to go with him to Haddonfield to support Wayne. And, uh, again, loyalists told... Uh, Colonel Sterling that, you know, Wayne was being reinforced, so they figured they had enough, and they were heading back to Cooper's Ferry, where uh, Wayne and uh, Pulaski's contingent of the Continental Cavalry met them at night outside of Haddonfield, and then they followed them to Cooper's Ferry, uh, where the uh, Queens Rangers and a couple of companies of the uh, 42nd set up a rear guard while they were crossing back in the the main force was crossing back. And again, there was another skirmish there. And this ended uh, the first uh, forage into Jersey by the Queens Rangers. They went back to uh, their base of operations at, in Kensington. What occurs at Quinton's Bridge? Now, the Rangers were only back at their base in Kensington 10 days. When they received orders, there's going to be another foraging operation in Jersey, because like I said, this part of New Jersey was, for the most part, unaffected by any of the wars. So, and this was a very uh, fertile farmland, so they figured, you know, we got a lot of stuff on this first trip. Let's go further south and see what we can do. And so uh, the second operation began at the beginning of uh, March, and uh, this one was a little bigger. It consisted of three British regiments, the 17th, the 27th, and the 46th, and uh, the Queen's Rangers, you know, for a total force of about 1,200 men. And they were, like I said, they were heading further south. Uh, they left Philadelphia and made their way to Salem, New Jersey, which is about 40 miles south on the Delaware River. The interesting thing, to transport these 1,200 men it took them four days to travel those uh, 40 miles. So from March 12th when they left, they didn't get to the Salem Creek till about uh, March 16th. And when they landed, uh, the, they were going to use the town of Salem as their main headquarters. And the rangers, they 
came later because their assignment was that they were to bring uh, scour the countryside for horses for the uh, hussars and for the officers. And so they didn't get to Salem until the next day. And uh, the main operation here was they were going to, as I said, use Salem as their center, their base of operation, and forage both north and south. The main obstacle for the British uh, south of Salem was the Alloways Creek. It's a tidal creek that is about 30 miles from the Delaware inland uh, that it travels. And again, as I said, it's a tidal creek. And it was crossed by three bridges. The Hancock Bridge closest to the Delaware, the middle bridge uh, called Quinton's Bridge, and then at the uh, furthest east was another bridge called Thompson's, but uh, they didn't even bother with that because it was too far inland away from where they felt they needed you know, to use the Delaware as their means of getting the forage across. So the uh, first operation is at Quinton's Bridge. Again, as I said, this was the middle bridge on the Alloways Creek. And uh, militiamen from both Salem and Cumberland counties, uh, those are the two joining counties in the southern part of the state, they set up defensive positions on the southern bank of the Alloways Creek, uh, particularly at the bridge crossings. And what happened was that the first operation is going to take part on the Alloways on the uh, Quinton Bridge because the Hancock Bridge, which was closest to the Delaware, the militia station there, what they did, they just took the bridge apart. They took all the planks away and uh, kept them on the south side of the river. So the British force that went there, there was no way they could get across. Now, uh, on the Quinton's Bridge, a uh, scouting party of the 17th Regiment of the British, they came to the bridge and there was a uh, pretty strong defensive position on the uh, south side of the bridge. And they sent word back to, uh, I forgot to mention, Colonel Mallhood. He was the overall commander of this operation. So they sent word back to him and uh, Simcoe, and both of them came to the bridge, and the uh, Queen's Rangers accompanied them. And the Rangers were, took a circuitous route, so that the British couldn't, uh, or that the Americans wouldn't see that a large force was coming there. And so they came up with a plan. The idea would be, tr let's try to uh, get the uh, Americans to cross the bridge, and uh, we'll take care of them there. And what they did is they sent this scouting party of the 17th back to Quinton's Bridge. They fired their muskets, and they started running away because the uh, militia fired back. And the ironic thing, there was a French lieutenant, uh, a Lieutenant Ducos, who was uh, on a recruiting mission uh, there. He was one of the foreigners who was with the American Army. And he got the American militia to go after the British. He encouraged them, oh, look, they're running away. Let's catch them. And so this strong militia group, they raced across the bridge chasing the uh, British away, and in the meantime, Simcoe had the Queen's Rangers set up an ambush. They took over a farmhouse. They hid there. A company was in the farmhouse. Another, the main part of the Rangers were in the woods, 
And as the militia charged across the bridge chasing the British, the trappers sprung, and when the militia realized what happened, they made a mad dash back across the, uh, the creek. However, by this time, the rangers had blocked the bridge, and a number of the militia had drowned uh, trying to swim across the creek. And uh, again, this was a really devastating loss for the militia. But uh, more militia was coming up south, so the uh, British didn't really uh, cross the uh, creek to take the advantage of their position. And so that's what happened on uh, Quinton's Bridge. One of the climaxes of your article is the Hancock House Massacre. Uh, What happened there? Sure. Now, the Hancock House, ironically, was owned by uh, Judge William Hancock, who was a loyalist. And uh, the, like I said, this bridge and the Hancock House was closest to the Delaware. And uh, this bridge had been taken apart by the militia. And so... After the Quinton Bridge uh, success of the British, they decided it was time to teach the militia at the, uh, Hancock, uh, at the Hancock Bridge a lesson. And so they devised a plan where the Queen's Rangers would, uh, at night, row down the Alloways Creek to its mouth at the Delaware, cross the river or cross the creek south out of sight, on the, make it to the south bank, and then make their way back north to the house, which was, I forget, about uh, maybe five, six miles. But it was through Swampland, and they got a local loyalist to guide them through this uh, swamp. And the the plan was that uh, the 17th Regiment was on the, of the British were on the north side of the creek, and when uh, the Queens Rangers took over, the Hancock House and the properties there, a company would replace the uh, planks and the bridge would be available for the British soldiers on the north side to come across. And the original report that the uh, British got and Simcoe got was that there might have been up to 400 militiamen in that area. So, uh, and they didn't know how many people were in the house, but they thought it was a pretty big number. And so he set up his plan of attack that one company would charge through the front door, another company would come through the back, uh, a, sec- a third company, there were a number of, remember this was a farm, and there were uh, outbuildings, out barns, and things like this, and so different units were sent to take over each of these uh, buildings. And uh, the idea was that they were going to use bayonets, and so the trap was sprung, everybody charged in, and it turned out there was only like 20 militiamen there because the bulk had gone away during the day and the British didn't know this. And another irony was that uh, Judge Hancock uh, and his brother were there that night. Now, Simcoe in his uh, autobiography said he was told that the judge didn't live there anymore. Well, it was partly through... The judge wasn't, didn't stay there during the day, but he came back and stayed at night. And so when uh, the British charged with their bayonets into the house, uh, he was one of him and his brother, even though they were loyalists, they were uh, killed. 
Now, the uh, story goes that everybody was massacred. It was the massacre. Everybody was killed. But different reports came out that maybe uh, 16, uh, maybe up to 16 were killed, 11 were taken prisoners, different stories. But uh, to this day, it still it remains the Hancock House massacre. And the property today is a state, New Jersey State Park. And every year, the weekend closest to March 21st, when this event took place, they hold uh, reenactments and have people present talks. As a matter of fact, I gave a, present- a PowerPoint presentation on the Queens Rangers uh, a few years ago there. And they have, you know, colonial demonstrations of cooking and things like this. So, again, in New Jersey history lore, it's always referred to as the massacre. And I guess in, even though there weren't, you know, like I said, maybe 16 to 20 killed, which was, you know, still crippling, uh, the Rangers in the entire operation only lost one man uh, whose SAR was killed on this operation. So the British, again, were very successful. They sent uh, many uh, shiploads of goods back to Philadelphia, cattle and a lot of hay and forage, things like that. What do you think the legacy of the Queens Rangers should be? Well, uh, it's, again, the Queens Rangers were, uh, the bulk were loyalists. Uh, I, in my research, I found out that the Queens Rangers in 1779 were designated the first American regiment and the officers were now regular British officers and they were entitled to half pay when they weren't on active duty. And uh, it was also one of the, one of the few, if only loyalist units that were allowed to recruit non-Americans. Most of the, uh, all the other loyalist units, they were native born Americans. And when you, you, if you read the role of the uh, Queens Rangers in 1780, they had a number of foreigners, particularly Germans and English and Irish on there, and a number of deserters from the American Army. Uh, the, they went on after the uh, British left Philadelphia. They were the vanguard leading through Jersey to get back to New York City. At the, after the Battle of Monument, they became the rear guard. And once the British under Clinton were ensconced back in New York City, they uh, set their headquarters up on Staten Island. And they had a number of raids into New Jersey. And on one raid, uh, Simcoe was taken prisoner outside of uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And he spent about seven, eight months as a prisoner before he was exchanged. Interestingly, about 10 miles from where I live in Bordentown, New Jersey, he was held uh, prisoner of war in uh, Bordentown. In 1780, uh, a large portion of the Rangers under, with Simcoe were placed under Benedict Arnold when he went to Virginia. And they spent uh, most of 17, uh, 1780-81 on the peninsula raiding and skirmishing on the peninsula between the York and James River. They were at uh, Yorktown at the surrender. Uh, Simcoe asked Burgoyne for permission that he wanted to break out and get his men out of there because he felt as loyalists they were in danger. Uh, Burgoyne said no. So the 
Rangers were part of the surrender. Simcoe had been come ill at the time. He got a parole. He was sent back to on a ship to uh, New York, where he served out his parole until he was exchanged. Uh, in September of 1783, with the Treaty of Paris, the Rangers were sent to uh, Nova Scotia, and in October of 1783, they were disbanded as a unit. However, in 1791, uh, Simcoe is made Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, up in the Toronto, York area, and he reforms the Rangers. They become the... Uh, York Queens Rangers, and uh, today there is a uh, this unit is part of the uh, Canadian Reserve Army. They are in uh, the uh, armored uh, armored corps of the Canadian Reserve Army. So this unit traces their history back to the uh, Queens Rangers and Rogers Rangers also. So they they're you know, you can go on their site and read about their history that way. Uh, the other interesting thing is Robert Rogers, who, you know, became disgraced in the American eyes because of his, what he, you know, stayed as a loyalist. Uh, today, the United States Army Rangers still uses uh, 28 rules of ranging as an introduction to becoming a ranger in the United States Army. So, even though they were a British unit, they, had, they played a very important role in the American Revolution, in the history, and the folklore. Joseph Robluski, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.